following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Let's turn to Mark chapter 11. It's standing room only back there for a minute. It's amazing how many seats the kids take up. We're going to have to institute like uh, they do on flights, like you have to pay for their seat, otherwise you have to sit in your lap kind of thing. We're going to be reading Mark chapter 11, verses 27, all the way down to chapter 12, verse 12. Remember that chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. They were not there originally, and sometimes the people who put those in did a good job inserting them, and sometimes they did not, and I would say this time they did not. That is one section and should not have been divided by the chapters. We're going to read chapter 11, verse 27, all the way to chapter 12, verse 12, and then go to the Lord in prayer. I really just want to continue the theme of our time together this morning already. Just uh, the music and the songs have just really been drawing our attention to Jesus. Just how desperately we need him. I mean, we have nothing apart from him. And so we want to pray and ask God after we finish reading here that he will do that still this morning in his word. And send us out reminded and encouraged to pursue him alone. If you will please look at verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in a parable. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed." He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. You bow your heads in prayer. Jesus, I come now before you unable to explain your word to your people. This is your spirit's work and why you use men, I do not know. It brings you glory because it 
highlight our weakness and our foolishness and your majesty and glory and wisdom. And so I come this morning, Jesus, asking that you speak through me, that you teach us through my weak words, that your spirit do the things that no man could ever do, and that is to show us our deep and desperate and continuing need for you. It is so easy for us to go through the motions of Christianity, to say all the right things, to know all the right answers, to do the right things, to not do the wrong things, all for the wrong reasons, all to make ourselves feel better and look better, to establish a righteousness of our own and not to be found simply dressed in the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. And so we come this morning and and in advance of our time in your word, ask that you will show us these things in our hearts, convict us, change us by your spirit, remind us of where our true power lies and what the true antidote to the sin and the wickedness and the unrighteousness of our hearts really is. Jesus, we give you this time. It is yours. It always has been yours, and it always will be, and ask your blessing on it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you uh, weren't here for our time in the Word together last week, um, then you really missed out on something awesome. And I'm not referring to my sermon by any stretch of the imagination. I'm referring to the text that we looked at last Sunday, we were looking at Mark chapter 11, verses 12 and following here, where we find these two seemingly unrelated stories, one about Jesus cursing a poor defenseless fig tree, and then one about Jesus cleansing the temple. And I can't tell you how many times I have read those stories, uh, those scenes in various gospels over the years, and never really understood them, never been able to to put them together in my mind. I mean, you take that fig tree story, for example, and as I said last week, Jesus just comes across as petty, if you think about it. I mean, he, he's hungry, and he sees this fig tree off in the distance, and there's leaves all over it, so he goes up to look for figs, even though it's not the season for figs. Mark makes that very, very clear. And when he gets there and he doesn't find any figs, he's angry, and so he curses the fig tree. And then the story continues down about the, the, the cleansing, and you come back to the fig tree again in verse 20, and Sure enough, the fig tree's cursed. It's withered to its roots. It's gone, and the disciples are amazed by this. And, and so you see that he's upset, and he can do amazing things, right? And in the, in the cleansing story, Jesus walks into the temple, and he sees the money changers and the people selling the animals, and he overturns their tables, and he drives everyone out, and then he does one other thing that no one remembers, right, which is, anyone remember? Doesn't let anyone carry anything. Very good. One person listen. Uh, doesn't let anyone carry anything through the, through the temple. No one remembers that one, though, because it doesn't seem to fit with the mold that we've created for that story. But this is only temporary at best. As soon as he leaves, no doubt, they put everything back, and yet we call it him cleansing the temple, building a structure that he will tell us in chapter 13 is going to be destroyed very soon anyway. So we don't understand why. And last Sunday, I attempted to put all of those pieces and those thoughts and those two different stories into a a cohesive whole that actually makes sense and I think uh, is Mark's purpose in the story. Those those two seemingly unrelated stories are, in fact, one story. Remember, we, we looked at that last week, how Mark uses this technique called intercalation to take two different stories, to start telling one, then stop it and insert a second story, only to come back at the end and finish the first one. He uses that technique to show us that the two stories are actually one. 
that you can't understand one story apart from the other story. There's something about the two of them together that make the point. And, and the reason that authors do that is because it, it draws out certain points of emphasis that may not otherwise be so obvious to us as a, as a reader. For example, here in Mark 11, by putting these two stories together in this particular way, Mark is showing us that Jesus in this scene is actually pronouncing judgment on the temple. He's, he's not cleansing it. I mean, it's not that the temple building itself is the problem. Nor is it that the sacrificial system that goes on within the temple is the problem. None of those things are really the problem, uh, most obviously because they were ordained by God himself. Rather, it's how people have come to view them that is the real problem. And without rehashing everything that we had looked at last week, if you didn't hear it or weren't here, please go back and listen online. The people of Israel, both the, the leaders, the priests, and the, the regular people had come to view the temple as a source of national pride as the place they could go after their uh, sinful lives and do the things that God had commanded them to do and therefore that God would accept them as a result. And so it had become this sort of check-the-box, uh, uh, works-based religious system by which they and only they, note that, could be assured of heaven and of God's favor regardless of their hearts, regardless of their faith, and regardless of their lives. Do you, do you remember all that? So they can go out and lie and kill and steal and cheat and do all the things. As long as they come back and offer the right sacrifice, God's totally okay with them. That's, that was kind of their mindset. And, and, and God was done with this. He was done with it. And he had never cared about dead animals. I hope as you read the Old Testament, you don't lose that point. He, he's not concerned this simply that a lot of animals are killed and burned. He's not like a barbecue master, right, you know, who just wants to see a lot of meat on the grill. He's not concerned about dead animals. David gets that in the Old Testament. Other prophets get that and teach that to the people throughout the Old Testament. In the end, God wasn't interested just in the animals. He was interested in truly repentant hearts that believed in him, that loved him, and that wanted to have a relationship with him. And instead of that, the people had traded that kind of genuine relationship with God for the system of religiosity. As long as they did the right things, as long as they performed the right sacrifices, as long as they checked all the right boxes, then God would love them and everything would be fine. No real heart change was needed, no genuine belief. Thus, Jesus comes to announce his judgment on that system and everything that was attached to it. And just as the fig tree gave the appearance of life, it's full of leaves, Mark notes. Just as it gives the appearance of light, it bears no fruit. It's worthless. Looks good on the outside, dead on the end. And so just as Jesus pronounces a curse, a judgment on that fig tree, so Jesus announces the impending destruction of the temple and of the system contained therein. Okay, that... That was the part as I was studying that I had never understood before, you know. And for me, that, that's kind of exciting. You know, Jesus isn't, he's not cleansing the temple. The fig tree isn't this just one-off weird story about him being petty one day. No, all of these are, are, are parts of a whole that are coming together to show us what, what God is really wanting to do. And it was finally like after all these years of reading these stories, the, the blinders had been taken off my eyes and I could see. And I'm going to be honest with you, just as a, like as a student and as a teacher, I love that feeling. I mean, I love that feeling, that aha moment when you can finally see it, when you can finally read something and go, oh, 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 I get it. 
you know, that's cool, right? I get it. And I, I get excited when that happens and I get excited about then coming in here to try to, to show it to you. And as I was thinking about all of that uh, this week, I was reminded of the fact that that kind of reaction would probably be fairly confusing to Mark's original readers as well as to the people in the stories that we're reading about. Because to them, my aha moment is kind of like, uh, duh. <laughs> That's the only thing it could have been. That was obvious, right? It's, at least it was obvious to them. It was obvious to them what, what uh, was going on in the story. It was obvious to them what the, the point was. And you get just a taste of that. If you're in Mark 11, just look back at verse 18. You get just a taste of it. When in verse 18, after Jesus does the things that he does and he says the things that he says, Mark tells us that the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him. And I just would note that for them being in the scene and in the moment and being versed in the Old Testament like they were and understanding the references and allusions that Jesus is making in that scene— when they are watching him do the things he does, when they are hearing him say the things he says, they're not confused at all. There are no blinders on their eyes that need to be removed. They get it. And because they get it, they're angry. And because they're angry, they they fear him. They see the effect he's having on the people. They, They understand all these things and the accusations that he is making against the people's view of the temple and the sacrificial system. They get the judgment that he's pronouncing on it. It's all perfectly clear to them, and they want him dead as a result. He's attacking the foundational elements of both their culture, of their nation, and and also of of their religious system, and they can't let that continue. And so our text this morning is really just a continuation of this same uh, scene that we saw last Sunday. It's not really a part two. I've called it a part two a little bit, but it's different. It's not continuing the same thing. It's it's going to actually go in a slightly different direction as these priests and scribes and elders now confront Jesus directly regarding these accusations that he has made and regarding this, uh, this judgment that he has pronounced. And Jesus is going to turn this confrontation into one more statement of judgment that I'm pretty sure nobody in the scene saw coming. So if you will now, look at verse 27. The story begins here in verse 27 as Jesus is walking back into Jerusalem here on the third day. So if you were trying to keep up with a calendar, this is probably Tuesday morning of that week. We think he comes in on Sunday, original day, Monday, yesterday. Now we're on Tuesday here of this final week. And as he's coming in, he is confronted by three groups of people, Mark tells us, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now let me just pause to make sure that you understand who these groups of people are, because they're going to keep getting mentioned quite often in this week ahead here, and I want to make sure that as we're, we're reading about them, you know who they are. The chief priests are a group of priests that would include the current high priest. There's like, think military, there's a, there's a uh, chairman of the joint chief, so to speak, is a high priest, but that only lasts for a year. And so they would rotate and another guy would become the high priest the next year and then another guy the year after that. And so these group of the high priest and former high priests formed what were referred to as the chief priests. Okay, these are the the big wigs, the big dogs, the, the guys in Judaism who had put in the time and had been recognized for their, for their great priestly work. I don't really know how you would get chosen for this, probably political, but, but that's who this group is. The second group, the scribes, are the professional biblical scholars. 
which is funny that it's not the priests who are the professional biblical scholars, but we'll just let that pass for a moment. These are the guys who went to seminary. These are the guys who are the PhDs. These are the guys who know the Old Testament backwards, forward, inside, out, who spend their entire day doing nothing but arguing about it and trying to do one another in their knowledge of the Old Testament, okay? Scribes. And then the elders are probably laymen from the wealthy aristocracy of Israel. So remember that the temple is not just a religious center. It is a cultural center. It is a financial center. It's a national center. And so you've got wealthy Jews who wanted to have a stake in the game, right? And they want to be there in Jerusalem, be decision makers, be influencers. These are the the elders, these members of the, the wealthy aristocracy who were a part of this kind of ruling class there in Jerusalem. And I would remind you that these are the very three groups that Jesus himself predicted in those three foretellings of his death would do the things that they're about to do. So we're going to start to see the fulfillment of that. So they had come to him with a question. The question's pretty straightforward. By what authority are you doing these things? Or, it's actually two questions, who gave you this authority to do them? In case it's not clear to you, this is a loaded question. All right? it, it, they're asking if he believes that he has some inherent authority within himself to do the things he's done, to say the things he said, or if he has some derived authority from someone else. Someone else has given him the authority to do and say what he's done. And my guess is, is what they're hoping is that he will say that either A, he is the Messiah, he is God, and therefore he has inherent authority within himself to do what he's done, or B, that he is a prophet of God, that God has sent him, commanded him to come do the things that he's done. That would be that derived authority. And even though this isn't said in the text specifically, it is unquestionably clear to me that these people have already rejected him regardless of his answer. It doesn't matter what he says. They're not hoping to find out if he really is the Messiah, so don't read the question that way. Are you the Messiah? Because we want to know if you are. It's not that kind of question. Are you a prophet? Because if you're a prophet, we need to you know, respond appropriately. They're They're not hoping to find out the right answer. If he says yes to either question, it doesn't matter which one, their plan is to attack. And if he says no to both questions, then he's a crazy man who can just be easily dealt with. I have no authority. I'm just doing it because it's fun, you know, because I'm bored. It's Tuesday morning. What do you do? You know, you go in the temple and you stop the worship of the temple. That's great. So so that's what I mean when I say the question's loaded. Okay, Is is that clear? You get the point? It's a loaded question. There's no good or right answer for him with these people. But, but Jesus sees this. And just like he turned the tables of the money changers, right? So now he's going to turn the tables on these guys in front of all the people who are standing around listening. He says, okay, I'll ask you one question. Answer me. And I'll give you my answer as well by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, just to be fair, I'm accusing the scribes and the chief priests and the elders of coming to Jesus with a loaded question. He's coming right back at them with a loaded question, all right? And Jesus is, excuse me, but beyond being a loaded question, I think it's particularly interesting that Jesus is asking this question given the context of what he has just done. Think back with me for a moment on John's ministry, okay? You've got to Pause what you're seeing and thinking now and think back on John. 
John came to the people of Israel preaching what? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, right? He was out in the wilderness. He's a guy who looks like a prophet. He wears uh, camel's hair, eats locusts. No one's writing a diet book on that. Uh, He's calling people out to him. He's proclaiming God's righteousness to them. He's proclaiming people's sinfulness to them. You're, you're, sin, you're, 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 you're disobeying God. You're not living the way God has, has called you to do. You need to repent. And thus, on that basis, he's, he's calling them to genuine faith, genuine repentance, genuine, uh, so they can receive genuine forgiveness from God. All right? That's the Cliff Notes version of John's ministry. Now, Thinking of that, let me ask you two questions based off of that that I'm pretty sure all of you are going to get right. Was John's ministry in any way, shape, or form connected to the temple? Yes or no? No. In fact, he's not even in Jerusalem. He stays out in the the Judean and the Galilean wilderness. He stays away from them, probably out near the Jordan River. So it's not connected to the temple itself. Okay, very good. Excellent. So far, 100%. Number two... Did the repentance and forgiveness that John preached about require the sacrifice of an animal or any other component of the Old Testament sacrificial system? Wow, two for two. You guys are excellent. No, it it was solely about the heart for John, right? That means that in the example of John's ministry, we have someone preaching the importance of genuine faith and genuine repentance uh, and offering God's true forgiveness without having anything to do with the temple and the sacrificial system. Was this non-temple, non-sacrificial system-based ministry that John had from heaven, he asks, or from God, or from man, excuse me? Is Is it from God or from man? Answer me, and I will answer the question you have asked me. Okay, do you, do you see the problem that he's putting them in here? <laughs> the leaders do. If they say from heaven, then they are affirming the fact that God is offering forgiveness to people apart from the temple and its sacrificial system. Do, do you get the significance of that for them? I mean, if if they say yes, well, then here's John telling people, look, all you need to do to receive God's forgiveness is to believe and and to repent. It would be affirming that something has gone wrong in their system, that God wanted more from his people than just dead animals and religious rites, that the heart really did matter the most, and that what God wanted all along was genuine faith and repentance on the part of his people. And they know that Jesus' question back to them, if they say it's from heaven, is going to be, well, then why didn't you believe him? I mean, if he's from God, if this is what God is offering and it's different than what you've been practicing, why didn't you believe him? Which, of course, implies that they didn't believe him at all. but, But if John's message is from heaven, they have disbelieved and rejected God himself. Do you see the significance of that answer? Okay. However... If they say from man, then they're saying that John was just making all that stuff up. He's just crazy. He's just out there in the wilderness, weird, like, you know, fashion sense and diet and just a strange guy. But, but they can't say that because, as Mark points out here, they're afraid of the people because all the people believe that John 
really was a prophet, and they don't want the people to be upset with them because, quite frankly, their power derives from the people continuing on in just the status quo. Before we look at the answer back to Jesus, I just want you to notice that Jesus has put them in the very position that they were hoping to put him, right? They were wanting him to affirm that his authority was either from heaven, okay, that he has it in himself or he's derived it from somewhere else, or from man, effectively, no matter what he says, they're going to they're gonna be against him. It doesn't matter. There's no good answer for him. They're going to use it against him. And so Jesus turns the tables on them, puts them in the very same situation. And so they answer back, we don't know. We don't know if his message was from heaven, if it's from God. We don't know if it's just because he's crazy. Uh, uh, you know, this, this is a cop-out. This is a cop-out of epic proportions because these are the, the religious leaders. As the religious leaders of the people, shouldn't they want to know the most? I mean, if God is sending a message to them that, that maybe this isn't the way, maybe genuine heart faith, genuine heart repentance are the ways to receive genuine forgiveness from God, wouldn't the religious leaders want to know that the most? Isn't it kind of their job? And I used to think that they were being dishonest with their answer when they say they don't know. My assumption had always been that they actually did know what they thought, and that was it was just from man. Okay, like, you know, John's crazy, but we just don't want to say it because the people get upset. I, I, don't, I don't think that's the case anymore. I actually think they don't know, but it's because I think they don't care. They haven't even put the, the effort or the time into thinking about whether or not he's from God or not. It just didn't even matter to them. They just wanted to dismiss him and get rid of him. And thankfully, in John the Baptist's case, they didn't have to worry about it too much because Herod came along and took care of that problem for them. So they got, you know, they were probably like, yes, that's done. Mark that off the to-do list. You know, we don't have to worry about that one anymore. They, they didn't care who he was. They just didn't want to say that. And Jesus, recognizing this about them, says back, well, since you won't tell me, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You won't tip your hand. I won't tip mine either. Now, I think there's a part of this that when we read up to this point of the story, and we're like, you know, we want to start like high-fiving each other, like, yes, Jesus is awesome, right? I mean, look at the way he put them in their place. Look at the way that he shut them up. That's awesome. We should learn how to do that ourselves. Like, I, I don't think that's exactly the, the right point here. The real point here is that Jesus is revealing the true motivation and commitment of these religious leaders, and spoiler alert, it's not God. That's not their real motivation and their real commitment. They're not actually concerned at all about what God wants. If they were, they would have shown some interest in whether or not John's message, for example, is from heaven or from man. They couldn't care less. They're not concerned with his John or Jesus' true intentions for the temple, God's true intentions for the temple and a system of worship, they have hijacked this thing for themselves. The temple and its system have become the source of their power and their prestige. It has become the source of their comfort and their prosperity, and they want it all for themselves, and they will not abide anyone, whether he comes from God or man, who challenges any of that, not even God himself. They, they just don't care if either Jesus or John is from heaven, their only concern is shutting these men up so that they can keep what they think they have. 
(laughs) And Jesus is about to make that abundantly clear. Not only to these people, but everyone listening. That's the parable that comes here in chapter 12, verse 1. This parable in chapter 12 is not separate from this scene that we're looking at. It's It's a part of it, and I think parables are just best read directly. It goes like this. A man planted a vineyard. And he put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat And some they killed. And are you following what's going on in the story? Remember, parables are, every detail of a parable is not necessarily significant. It's the overall point, the direction of the parable that you're trying to pick up on. So are you getting the overall direction? The the owner bought this land and planted a vineyard and built these things for himself so that he could enjoy the fruit that, that would come from it. And he entrusted the vineyard to certain people who were supposed to to serve on his behalf. They were supposed to care not just for the vineyard, but also for the owner. That's really the most important part of this. They're supposed to care for the owner, what the owner's intentions were, what the owner wanted to get out of it. They don't care for either. Because when he sends a servant to the vineyard to collect what he had originally wanted, what he had purchased the vineyard for, they beat him and send him away. And so he sends another and Another, and some they beat, and and others they kill. They couldn't care less about what the owner wanted. They had no intention of doing anything that he had asked them to do. They wanted the vineyard for themselves, and so they beat or killed each and every servant that the owner sent to collect the fruit. And so the owner does one last thing. He still had one other, a beloved son. And that word beloved there could also be translated only as a correlation into Jesus, obviously. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And again, just just pause and consider that this is the owner's final act of calling the tenants to do what they were supposed to have done from the beginning. He says it. It's, I have one final thing. (laughs) It's my son. Now, on the one hand, one hand, I think we read this parable and we're tempted to think, well, the owner's crazy. Like, if, if you sent one servant and he was treated that way, you wouldn't, you wouldn't send another one. And yet he does. And then he does it again and they're killed and again and again and again. It sounds like there's a long history of, of servants. And certainly at the end of all that, you wouldn't send your son, right? Like, what kind of, what kind of person does this? It's outrageous. Doesn't the owner get it? But those feelings and those questions miss the true point of the story because what we're really seeing here is how gracious and how patient, if I can use a more biblical term, well, those are biblical terms, I guess, but uh, another biblical term, how long-suffering the owner is, that he wants the tenants to do what it is he called them to do in the first place. He wants them to care about his intentions for the vineyard and to give him the fruit that is rightfully his. However, what happens when the tenants see the son? They think that this is their chance to take the vineyard for themselves once and for all. And so they conspire to kill the son, and they do. 
They took him, killed him, threw him out of the vineyard. And now, now, Jesus, as the master storyteller and teacher, asks a question. This is very much like Nathan when he's, when he's telling the story to David about the rich man who stole the, the poor man's sheep after he had committed the sin with Bathsheba. It's that kind of like, aha, got you moment. He, he asked them a, a question, and it's a question that would have been deeply felt by anyone living in that story. You and I should be feeling the same thing. It's like, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What will he do now? They've killed all these servants and treated them terribly. Now, now they have killed the son. What will the owner do? Will he be angry? Will he, will he swoop in? Will he just, whatever you win, take the vineyard, I don't care anymore. What will the owner do? Anyone listening to this story would, would and should have felt outraged by the actions of the tenants. And I think they would immediately agree with the decision of the owner here in the story. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Notice he's not just going to kill them. The language here is very specific. He's going to, to destroy them. See, destroy isn't a punishment word. You're not like, son, you did something wrong. I'm going to destroy you. You know, <laughs> no, nobody says that to their children. Destroy is not a, a, a simple punishment word. This is a divine wrath word. This is a, a judgment word word. He is going to destroy the tenants and then give the vineyard to others. In other words, his purposes with the vineyard will not be undone. The, the first tenants may not have fulfilled what he had asked. They might not have done what he wanted, but his purposes with the vineyard will not be undone. He intended to get fruit and he will get it. These tenants were wicked. These tenants were unfaithful to the owner. And so he's going to give the vineyard to others who will produce the fruit that he originally wanted. And thus Jesus now drives it home <laughs> with this conclusion. Have you not read the scripture and hear that with the ears of the, of the scribes and the priests? And the, I mean, like, <laughs> this is insulting <laughs> to say the least. Have you not read the scripture, Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, not man's. It's the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He is telling them that even though they have rejected him, even though they're going to cast him aside, he will become the cornerstone, the foundation of something new and better. And this isn't just man's doing. It's not something that he's working out. It is God's doing himself. God is about to judge the old and build something new and that they themselves as the leaders now are personally under God's judgment. You see, this parable is different in that sense. It's not, it's not focused at the temple and the sacrificial system like what we saw last Sunday. This is targeted uh, not at Israel as a whole, but, but to the leaders specifically, to the leaders personally, they are the tenants who have acted wickedly and unfaithfully towards God. They are the builders that have rejected the stone, and God is about to destroy them and to build something new out of that rejected stone and give it to others so that they will produce the fruit he's always wanted. It's targeted at them, and they know it. And so the final comment, verse 12 Again, they're seeking a way to arrest him, but they feared the people for they perceived that he had told them. See, there's no aha moment for them. No blinders getting lifted. They get it. They know exactly what he's talking about and who he's talking to, and so they left and just go away. You know, last week we saw 
Jesus pronouncing judgment on the temple and on the sacrificial system because it had been perverted, it had been distorted, it had been changed into something that God had never intended, a check-the-box system that had nothing to do with the heart. This week, we see Jesus pronouncing judgment on the leaders of that system. And I've had so many thoughts running through my mind with this passage this week, but one in particular that I want to to share with you, it was just a passage of scripture, just two verses that just as I was reading and studying, just, just kept coming back over and over again. And it's one you're going to know very well. And stick with me for just a moment. It's 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, where John writes these words, do not love the world or the things in the world. Why? Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And here, as you can see, John is setting two things in opposition to each other, right? On the one hand, you've got the love of the world, which, of course, would include the things in the world. On the other hand, you've got the love of the Father, the love of God. And he makes it very clear here in verse 15, you can't hold both. You can't add one to the other. You can't mingle them. You're either this or you're this. You're not this. Okay, you can't, can't do it. And so we either love God or we love the world. And, and to help us understand what it means to love the world, to even know what the world is, he gives us these three basic categories, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Or if you would allow me to alliterate them for you just to make it easy to remember because I'm not that smart, so I've got to think about things simply. So I do it like this. It's three things. It's pleasure, possessions, pride. Okay? Easy to remember, pleasure, possessions, pride. And, and if, if you have any sense of what's going on around you, you see that that perfectly defines our world, does it not? And what our world values and what our world wants to find identity in, pleasure. So, uh, you know, in any sense, pleasure. Sex, drugs, alcohol, tobacco, food, fun, excitement, whatever, leisure. Everyone around us in the world today is seeking pleasure. It's what our world does. It's what our world values. And they find it in whatever ways interests them and to whatever degree they desire. They find uh, a joy and identity in possessions and just stuff and money and houses and cars and clothes and toys and electronics and you name it. We, we see this from our, our children at the earliest of ages. They want stuff. They want to hold on to something. Uh, pride, reputation, accomplishments, uh, a sense of worth or value recognition. You can find this in sports or in work and in parenting and personal looks and all kinds of places. Find it in pleasures and in your possessions. I mean, why do people always need to buy name brand things? You ever thought about that? What's the difference in a name brand shirt and a regular shirt? They both cover your body. But there's something about the, the symbol on the shirt that makes people think something about you. So it's, it's pride. It's th those three words right there, pleasure, possessions, pride, summarize our world, do they not? And everything that our, our world values and tries to find identity in. And you would think that perhaps out of all the areas of, of our life that would be immune to the world and its, its basic uh, value system, surely religion, surely religion would be immune, right? And yet, as I look at these leaders, and this is why this kept coming back to my mind this week, I see clearly that it wasn't. Because the temple and its system had become a source of these leaders' pleasure, possessions, and pride. I mean, their authority, their positions of authority and, and of power and of prestige, it was derived from the temple and the system that they administered. I mean, they were somebodies because of what they did. 
They were recognized because of, of, of who they were within that system. And they profited from that system. That's well documented how the chief priests, the scribes, these elders profited from the temple worship system. I mean, their possessions increased because of it. And, and certainly their pride was greatly stoked by it because they loved to be recognized by the people. They loved to be seen in the streets. You've heard Jesus make those comments throughout the gospel. I mean, this, folks, is the, is the essence of worldliness. They didn't love the Father. They weren't interested in what he wanted. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to change. They didn't want to do anything but protect what they already had within that system. For them, religion had just become another means of worldliness. It wasn't the antidote to it. It was the means of worldliness. And there are many in our world, and probably several in this room, who feel the same way who bought into the same lie, that somehow religion could be an antidote to worldliness when in fact it is, it is the means, that somehow religion can coexist with it, um, not realizing that religion can actually facilitate it. They feel better about themselves because they showed up on a Sunday morning at a building at a particular time and sat through it. They endured. <laughs> they feel better about themselves. They feel personally fulfilled by their time here. Let me just give you a little hint. If you ever hear someone say that they feel personally fulfilled by their religious activities, that's a red flag. It was not right here. Um, they, for them, for them, it, religion is, is something that they think will give them happiness. It will take away their pain. It'll take away their problems. No, it doesn't. And when it doesn't, these are the people who get disillusioned and then leave. For them, Christianity has been a thing to point to, like they point to their house or their cars or their IRA or whatever. It's another thing on the shelf that they can kind of cling to and say is their own. For them, it's a source of pride, personal pride, because they found the right way while others haven't, because they're going to be in heaven while everybody else is going to be in hell. See, that's the problem, right? Because religion has never been and never will be the antidote to worldliness. The only antidote to worldliness is actually stated very clearly here in 1 John 2, 15 and 16. And it's what? Loving the Father. It wasn't about not doing these ten things and doing these six. It was always and only about loving the Father. Because when we love the Father, the love of the world won't be in us. They're, they're incompatible. And Jesus himself will remind us next week of the greatest commandment. What was it? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or if I can put it in terms that mirror the opposite side of what we've just seen, is to view God as being your greatest pleasure, to view God as being your greatest possession, and to view God as being your greatest source of pride. That's loving the Father with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, it's coming to view God, the Father, as the greatest source of pleasure that you could ever, ever experience. That there is nothing in this world that would bring you more joy than Him. Him. Not His gifts. Him. To, to, to not just simply try to come to Him because you want to avoid the pain of hell kind of thing. No, you're coming to Him because He's worth coming to. That, that kind of idea. That it's coming to view God as being your greatest possession, that he alone is the thing that you want. And I put thing in quotes there. Thing that you want above all other things. 
you know, to have the mindset of Jim Elliott. I heard this quote this week, and it's been in my mind. He was the, the martyred missionary to, to the Alca Indians in Ecuador. He's the one who said, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You can't say that unless you have really come to see God as being your greatest possession, to be able to walk away from the others because he is so valuable. And it's coming to view our God as being our only source of pride, that we have nothing, nothing to boast in in this life apart from him. I mean, what accomplishment would possibly outweigh the fact that you can say, I know God and God knows me? Oh, you won the Nobel Prize? I know God. Oh, you got a big promotion at work. <laughs> the God of the universe has made me his own. What accomplishment could you possibly point to that's going to top that one? To, to view him, I mean, th- this, to view him as our greatest pleasure, our greatest possession, our greatest, this, this is loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And folks, religion doesn't make that possible. Only Jesus makes that possible. You see, he was the stone rejected by the builders, but God himself has made Jesus now the cornerstone of this new thing that he is building, a temple not made with hands, a people not uh, uh, defined by borders. They are an assembly of people from all kindreds, tribes, tongues, and nations, redeemed by his sinless blood shed on our behalf, gathered by faith and dependent on him from everything to start to finish. You say, I want to love God more? You can't. You can't. But Jesus can love him perfectly through you. As you are dependent on him, as the Spirit fills you and you walk in the Spirit by faith, Jesus the Son loves the Father perfectly through us. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it is not I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. It's him living in me in the life that I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've died. Jesus now lives through me, and as he loves the Father perfectly through me, so I too love the Father. He changes us, and he makes us more like himself, the only one who can perfectly love God. So the call today is not to do something. The call today is to examine your heart to see, have, have I allowed a worldly view of Christianity, a worldly view of the gospel to, to penetrate my heart and mind and life, to, to begin to look at it as something that I can do, something I can hold on to, something that, you know, I've made all the right choices, me, me, me. It's very self-focused, very man-centered. Or have you come to the place where you are just on your knees crying out, I have nothing apart from you. I have nothing apart. I had nothing apart from you. I have it now and nothing apart from you. And I will never have anything apart from you. Until we come to that point, I do not think we will understand what it means to truly walk in the Spirit and to live by faith. Will you bow your heads? Jesus, we come this morning just reminded from your word that you never wanted to build a kingdom for us. It is so easy for us, like these religious leaders, to to look at at Christianity, to look at the gospel, even to look at you and the cross and what you accomplished there and to make it all about us, to just simply try to add you into our lives because it makes us feel better. It's a good thing to have on the resume. 
to not come as the poor, helpless beggars that we will always be. We, we are still trying to build a righteousness of our own rather than coming, standing naked before you, asking, pleading for you to dress us in your righteousness. And so forgive us, Lord, please forgive us. Remind us, Spirit, please reveal to us how desperately we need you day by day to not look at ourselves and, and our religion from this worldly mindset, but to remember that it's all about you, Jesus. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. And we do not come to the Father except by you, yet we want to come to him every other way. So we are reminded this morning, we have you or we have nothing. You are better than everything. You are more than everything. You are more sufficient than everything. Change us, please, we ask. Make us want this. Overpower our sinful hearts and call us back to yourself, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.